Welcome back, everyone, to the Cot Red Podcast. I'm Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. We're just two dog lovers here to talk some true crime, horror movies, and, of course, our dogs, too. But this week is a little different. We are recording from the road. On the river? No, on the beach. On the beach, yes. We are in Gulf Shores celebrating our fifth anniversary, so you won't hear any of the dogs in the background this episode. I know they're having a good time, but I miss our critters. Megan missed them, like, as soon as we left. I can't help it. I loved them. We know the boys are having a blast at Hounds. That's their favorite place. The girls are at my parents getting all the treats. Ripley is earning her keep by killing mice for her Molly, for her grandma. The The people next door to us at this condo probably think we're crazy because we're... Doing a podcast in the middle of No, those of the old ladies room. left. Yeah. Those old ladies are gone. Our cats are running wild in the house. We are very thankful that two of our best friends not only live close enough to check in on them, but they're animal lovers like us, so they don't mind. And then, of course, when we get home, they leave for a few days, so we'll just be returning the favor anyways, which is really, really nice. It does make me feel good that Finnegan will just dart down the stairs she when they cares about no one except for her mother i guess so but i'm just glad i'm not the only one she's no. terrified of no she's so feral but we've had her three years she i was... don't understand <laughs> we get a snapchat from them and finnegan's under like three blankets mm-hmm. on the bed <laughs> he puts the the camera light on his phone to her and she just gets so pissed oh she hates it she was dwelling in her cave i did say last week i was going to mention a couple of my books so i thought i would do that and my taste is not it's not normal she's been into some dark shit lately (laughs) yeah so i don't know if everybody's taste is like mine probably not I do have a couple that aren't, like, terrible on this little list I got going on here. These are just, I think these are the last, like, five or six. Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seven that I've read. In the last, like, two weeks or what? I don't know. Maybe a month or so, give or take. Some of them are a little bit older, but I really like them, so I was going to mention them. The first one is called The Chain by Adrian McKinty. The chain is is kind of a cool one. It you remember like growing up you get like those chain letters or chain emails or like on Facebook like if you don't share something bad would happen to you. Yeah. Those. So it's kind of like that in a way. So a parent, whether it be the mom or the dad, has to kidnap a child and pay a ransom in order to get their own child back. And then you have to wait until the next person after the child that you've kidnapped parents gets another child for yours to be released. So it's like this domino effect, a chain. That one was really good. Did it have a happy ending? Yes, it It did. did. It did. And then I read two by, mean these names, I swear to God. (laughs) I think it's Anna Alborn. But one is called The Seed. That's the one I read in the car on the way here. That one was awesome. I'd probably give that one five out of five. Dang. Yeah. So this guy and his wife have these two little girls. 
And he grew up in Georgia. They now live in... I don't remember where they live. Louisiana. That's right. They now live in Louisiana. He had a really weird childhood growing up. His parents were slaughtered in their home. That would be a weird childhood. But he doesn't know that until he goes back to visit because he starts seeing things and experiencing things. And then his youngest child starts doing things like he did when he was little. So he tries to go back home to see what his roots were, see what happened to him. And it's like this weird, you never, it never really tells you if it's a demonic possession or a spirit or whatever it is, but something was haunting him, possessing him, made him do these things. And you think that the second daughter is just a normal kid, but really it's this demon made a replica of him so he could be reborn again to do those awful things all over again. Freaky. It was really crazy. Then that's I, all in a book. Yeah. Like I yeah. picture that in a movie. I can't imagine reading that oh it's so cool when you use your own imagination the other book by her is called brother i've told you a little bit about this jesse hey brother uh yeah kind of not too far off deep in the appalachian mountains is this family they're not inbred they're just real they're still kind of wrong turny you know but they're not inbred (laughs) they like to take girls or women that don't really have families or anything and they kidnap them and they torture them oftentimes they do use their meat from their bodies to eat but this one kid in the family i know i told y'all this some fucked up shit the one kid in the family that doesn't act like them you learn there's a certain reason why he doesn't because he's not really a part of that family so he's actually a normal person he wasn't born into that life that was a really good one. It had a dark turn at the end. Don't go spoiling on them now. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Then there's The Troop by Nick Cutter. That one was wild. I liked this one a lot because it used different mediums because it looked like a normal book from one kid's perspective. And then it looked like um, reports from some sort of computer program or, well, I can't really say anything else because it'd give away. But just know it's about this scout like troop leader and then his little troop with him they go on a like annual uh camping trip i'd eat the shit out of some girl scout cookies right now love dude (laughs) you wouldn't after you read this (laughs) so they're out they're camping they're doing their thing and this man creature comes on to where they're camping and the scout leader is a doctor so he takes him in he's trying to help him But he notices this man is just, like, deteriorating minute by minute. There's something going on, and he's so hungry. He can't satisfy his hunger. He's eating dirt. He's eating rocks. He's eating whatever he can around him. Something is going on with him. And then, of course, you find out later what it is, and then it starts taking over every person in the camping trip. So that one was wild. Then we have... Theme Music by T. Marie Vandelli, and it's her first book, and I thought it was really great for a debut. And this girl, same kind of scenario, something happened in her house, her whole family was slaughtered, so she's kind of like, you know, messed up. Well, she doesn't have like a connection to her childhood, so when her childhood home comes up for sale, she buys it because she wants to know more about her past and what happened to her because she can't remember anything. She was a baby when it happened. Big mistake. Right. It, and it's always that mistake. Don't don't ever buy a house. That's just the thing. 
Because it's always house. a haunted house. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about plumbing or something. Oh, that too. So it's just her, like, on her journey trying to figure out what happened in her life. And it's it's like a ghost story. It's pretty good. Then we have House Across the Lake by my man, Riley Sager. I've read all his books except for one, the one that just came out. i got to read The Only One Left. I think that's what it's called. But this one got some hate because it's not like his normal books. I liked it. It did have, like, a really weird, like, out of nowhere twist. You're like, what the fuck? What? Haters gonna hate. Yeah, it has one of the lowest. Haters gonna ain't. Oh, Lord. (laughs) It's got one of the lowest ratings on Amazon of his books. Well, you better bump up those numbers. I know. I'm going to do some fake some fake uh, reviews or something on there. <laughs> but I liked it. It's about this girl. She's a drunk. She's struggling through her way of trying to be sober, I guess. Trying to get trying to be sober. So she her family sends her to the family house on the lake for her to recover. Of course, she doesn't. She sends, like, the errand guy out to get her booze and stuff. And she keeps seeing the woman that lives across from her there's something going on in her house she's got binoculars she's out there spying and she sees her disappear she's like what the hell happened to her well there's a twist that comes on later and it's just it's nothing i expected i remember like when it happened i like put the book down i was like huh (laughs) and then i powered through it so it has a really weird part in it but it was really good overall and then lastly is the one I literally just finished last night, the one I was very disappointed in. Oh. And this this is one of those very weird ones. Tinder is the flesh. And if the title doesn't give it away, I don't know what will. It's by Augustina Bosterica, I want to say is how you pronounce his name. It's a Spanish book, so I wonder if part of it got lost in translation, like... Because it kind of does feel a little choppy at times when you're reading through it. But it is uh, about... Cannibals. It is cannibalism. It is, but it's like a sophisticated version. So in this book, there was this disease that pretty much made all meats, all animals, dogs, cats, cows, pig, everything you can imagine, hazardous for people to eat. It was deadly. So they started to pretty much grow humans, breed humans in captivity for slaughtering for food. So it wasn't hazardous to eat humans? No, because of whatever feed was going towards animals and critters, and then they they would just slowly infect other species like them. Interesting. But plants were okay to eat? Yeah, plants were fine, as far as I can tell in the book. But, yeah, it's about about them... uh, Breeding humans to consume. And it gets very detailed in like chapter 13 or so. Like the process of them. Because they say in the book that they use every single bit of the person, including the skin. They make that into leather. Or like there's drawers that they put different body parts in to preserve them. And they sell them for whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disturbing, but I'd see the movie. Right, I slept just fine after reading it. Of course you did. <laughs> With all that being said, if y'all have any questions about any of those or anything else I've read or you have some sort of weird book that you, like, Megan would love it, send it my way. Jesse has our case 
today. He is taking us back home to Arkansas with a double whammy, a double doozy of some kind, right? Of some sort, yes. Well, love, if you're ready. Let's do it. Proceed. My sources today are ArkansasOnline.com, TrueCrimeDiva.com, Arkansas Justice Project, THV11, Fox 16, Legal.com, KAIT8.com, and Narchive.com. Narchive? Narchive. Narchive. We are going back to Arkansas again for this one. We have some weird town names throughout our beautiful state. Possum Grape? Is that on your list? It is on my list. Hell yeah. We got Wiener, Arkansas. Yeah, that's going towards Jonesboro. I think they have a, a liquor store named Wiener Liquor, but... <laughs> <laughs> Do they? Probably. God, I hope so. If not, we're going to open one. Right. Toad Suck, Arkansas. Nimrod, Arkansas. Then Megan said Possum Grape. Then about 16 miles down the road from Possum Grape, you have Bald Knob, Arkansas. Oh, that's where we're going? Home okay. Of the, home of the Bulldogs. The population of Bald Knob was about 3,000, and there was less than 200 girls that went to that high school. This story I have for you today involves two girls that went to Bald Knob High School together in 1995. But these two girls grew up different. One was a shy 15-year-old who had to grow up fast because she had a nine-month-old daughter to take care of. What? Yeah, at the age of 14, she had a kid, <gasps> so yeah, she had to grow up fast. And her family was nothing like the Cleavers. Her father was a registered sex offender. Her brother was in prison for burglary. Then, of course, she was a teen mom who had to grow up fast. This girl had been known to run away a couple times, but she would come back. And you ask around Bald Knob today, and not very many people remember Robin Lynn Farnsworth. On January 27, 1995, Robin Farnsworth left her home for school, but she never returned. And her parents didn't think much of it at first because she had run away before. They just figured she'd show up in a day or two. Well, she didn't, and her mother Kathy finally reported to the police that she was missing after four days. Police considered her to be a runaway. I'm not a big fan of this term, but they would just call her an at-risk youth mm -hmm. runaway. She did have a lot going against her, but a lot of people become successful in life from situations she was in. Being a runaway or leaving home voluntarily isn't supposed to matter, though, to law enforcement officials under laws that were enacted in 1985 for children and then in 2001 for adults. Police are required to immediately enter missing persons reports into state and national databases, but police tend to routinely fail to follow through on that requirement from time to time, so they actually never sent her missing persons report into like the state and national database ever well like oh during that time yeah. okay a month went by and there was no word from robin then another girl from bald knob high school went missing on march 8th so that was 
just a little over a month after Robin went missing. This was an 18-year-old popular cheerleader from a really good family, and the reaction of this disappearance from the community and the girl's family was completely different. They knew something was wrong. She wouldn't just run away. Kenyatta Haynes' parents reported her missing right away. Dozens of people volunteered to help search for Kenyatta Haynes. And Kenyatta's case was front page news all over Arkansas. Robin's case had very little coverage. Just over a month apart, two girls from the same high school go missing, and it's not like Bald Knob, Arkansas is just this hub for criminal activity. So could these two girls be connected? White County Sheriff at the time, Jess Odom, remembered seeing a missing persons photo of Robin Farnsworth while he was interviewing people for Kenyatta Haynes's case. It scared him to think that there were two missing young girls, like could there be a serial killer or something out there? The county sheriffs were handling Kenyatta's case, and the Bald Knob police were on the Robin Farnsworth case. Okay. And Odom talked to the police chief about his feelings and was told Robin was just a runaway. So Odom let it go after that and put his attention towards the Kenyatta case, as did everybody else. Robin's case pretty much just went cold. That's sad. It really is. Because you got two girls one month apart like that. It's just, you would think. What are the odds? Yeah, in such a small town like that, you feel like they're going to be connected in some way. Well, two days after Kenyatta went missing, her partially closed body was found submerged in a creek in an isolated wooded area close to the Bald Knob Country Club. This area was known as kind of a lover's lane and a party hangout for local teenagers. Kenyatta had been handcuffed and beaten. Some early reports said she had been stabbed multiple times and there was ligature marks around her neck. And rocks were also put in her clothing and tied around her waist. So I'm assuming... To weigh her down. Yeah, so she'd kind of just sink to the bottom of the creek. The day after Kenyatta's body was found, two of her classmates were arrested on capital murder charges. You have 17-year-old James Derrick Grubbs and 18-year-old Donnie Ray Temple. Not sure what made Grubbs and Temple want to commit such a heinous act, but doing a little more digging into who these boys were, police found that Grubbs and Kenyatta were friends. They shared a locker and ate at the same lunch table. Now, Donnie Temple was a special education student. Temple and Grubbs worked at the local Piggly Wiggly together, and that's where they became friends. They both also had a connection to Robin Farnsworth in a way. Robin's boyfriend worked at the Piggly Wiggly with them. Him and Grubbs were actually friends, and they even searched for Robin together, supposedly. Then... Temple and Robin were actually cousins by marriage. Huh. Well, I mean, I was going to say small world, but it's a small town thing. I'm assuming that when the police started questioning, like, all her friends and stuff, this is when they kind of found enough evidence to charge them with capital murder. Mm Mm-hmm. They questioned Temple, and he confessed to what happened. 
Temple told police that Grubbs picked him up from school the same day Kenyatta went missing. When he got in Grubbs' truck, Kenyatta was in there, lying on the floor, tied up. She had been raped, according to Temple, and Temple said that he watched near the creek as Grubbs hit her over the head with a shovel until she was dead. Then Grubbs ordered Temple to help fill her clothes with rocks to make her sink to the bottom of the creek. Whenever I hear stuff like that, especially someone you're close to, like they're supposedly great friends, like how do you go from like zero to a hundred like that? You know what I mean? Right. Like Where did that come from? Yeah. And I know like Temple was kind of a special education student, so like... He might have been manipulated. Yeah, he could have been talked into helping him and everything who knows during a phone interview from prison Grubbs said that he remembered Robin and seeing missing persons posters in the halls of their high school before his arrest but he said he knew her vaguely he heard that she was kind of wild and that she just kind of ran off somewhere on April 4th 1995 Donnie Temple asked to speak to a jailer he and Grubbs were awaiting their trials in the White County Jail at the time. Temple told one of the guards that he had something very important to tell him. He said that Grubbs had taken him to a barn on a dirt road near Russell, Arkansas, not long before Kenyatta's death. And when they were in the barn, Grubbs showed him Robin Farnsworth's body under what? a pile of newspapers. She was dead and had been beaten badly. And the jailer stopped Temple mid-story and contacted Temple's lawyer, and he contacted the sheriff, pretty much letting them know what he had just heard. And Temple's attorney advised him to never mention what he saw again, and that was really the last we heard Temple say anything about Robin. Immediately after, Sheriff Odom went searching for barns off dirt roads near Russell, Arkansas, and they ended up finding what they thought was the barn that Temple had described, which was off Old Russell Road. This road was used often by locals to travel between Bald Knob and Russell, Arkansas, just five miles apart. Yeah, I was looking Russell up because I've n- never heard of it. Neither have I. But it only has 184 people in 2020. So that's how tiny... Just pass through. Like blinking your... Yeah, it probably has like one four-way stop or something. Yeah, no lights. Yeah. So the search team went over the barn and the thick woods surrounding it. A deputy came across a patch of ground under a cedar tree where something large seemed to have decayed. The search team found what looked like fingernails, (laughs) some finger bones, and buttons from pants. Ugh. And that was really the extent of it. There were no other remains found at the time. Detectives said they sent everything they had to the state crime lab to see if the bones belonged to a human. Sheriff Odom spoke with Robin's mother and basically told her the information that they got from Donnie Temple, but she believed that Robin was alive. She swore that she actually saw Robin from a distance before Temple even told this jailhouse story. I don't know if 
like she was just trying to make herself believe wishful thinking yeah that maybe robin was still out there or maybe she really did see her i don't know but if she did i'd be running after her yelling her name right why wouldn't why wouldn't you call out to her go after her if you saw her so i don't i don't think she actually saw her maybe she saw someone that looked like her and she's like i said wishful thinking she misses her child in September of 1995, Grubbs, to everybody's surprise, pleaded guilty to capital murder in Kenyatta's death. Temple also pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in Kenyatta's death early the following year. Both were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And when asked about Robin later on, Grubbs said that it took years before anyone ever questioned him about Robin's disappearance. Why would you not just volunteer that if you're already in jail? What? Like, if he knew something about her, you're already going to, going to prison for the rest of your life. If you know something, tell. Let that family have some closure. Well, he's a piece of shit, so... True. <laughs> there's that. Even in Kenyatta's case file, there's no reference to the statement that Temple made to the jailer about seeing... Robin's body in the barn. The file has no notes about Robin at all. Well, you said that they told him to keep quiet, right? His lawyer his did. His lawyer did? Yeah. Hmm. What are they trying to hide? Well, his lawyer doesn't want him convicted of anything else, I guess. Robin's name never showed up on the list of missing people at the Arkansas Crime Information Center. No one could find the old missing persons file. So either Bald Knob and White County officials really screwed that up or the Arkansas Crime Center somehow misplaced it. At the time, most Arkansas Crime Information Center officials believed that the state's missing persons list was incomplete and out of date anyways. Like names of missing people who had been found were still on the list too. Oh, that, you know, they try to keep the list current by sending a list out to law enforcement agencies around the state and getting them to certify that each missing person is still missing. Right. Each local law enforcement agency is required to check in regularly with families of missing persons to see if that person has turned up or mm-hmm. if any new information has come up. I'm sure those phone calls are not fun. No, I don't imagine so. Or they, like, get put off or something because they're just like, I don't want to make that phone. Can you just imagine having Mm -hmm. to do that after, like, someone's been missing five to ten years or something? Hey, have you heard anything? Hey, did they come home? Yeah, bringing that back up to the family. On December 28th, 1997, while deer hunting in a wooded area off Old Russell Road... A man named Johnny Johnson stumbled upon a human skull with no jawbone. Johnny Johnson. Jonathan Johnson. Yeah. I like it. There was also a red sweater with tassels that was barely covered in dirt. And he saw some fingernails painted purple laying in the dirt too. Johnson said he'll never forget the pair of brown penny loafers that were laying there. He said, they were itty-bitty shoes, a size four or five. I thought it was a kid's when I found them. Now, I don't know how long it takes for, like, fingernails to decay. I just thought that was crazy that 
they were still painted purple. Yeah. Like they didn't erode away the coloring yeah. or anything. You would think, right? Yeah, I just told you my big toenail polish <laughs> is gone after today. Just being at the beach? Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Johnson obviously reported his findings to the police, and someone with the White County Sheriff's Office told him that the remains were probably those of Robin Farnsworth. And this was only about 100 yards from that barn where Temple... I was going to ask. Yeah, where he described where he, what he saw. And there were no other missing persons cases in that area either, unless it just happened to maybe be a body from another county over or something, but... I can't see that. Again, what are the odds? Right. Sheriff Odom sent the bones to the state crime lab, and the lab records indicated that they were examined on December 30th, 1997, two days after Mr. Johnson discovered them. It was determined that the skull belonged to a female. Most law enforcement officers suspected that the remains did belong to Robin, but at the time they weren't for certain. Mm-hmm. Again... They were found 100 yards from the barn. So, like, was this area so, like, thick and wooded that Remote? they couldn't find it in that very first search? Or they didn't the really or? try? Yeah. But they just suck at searching. I don't know. Odom also contacted Robin's dentist to see if the teeth in the skull possibly matched the teen's dental records. But unfortunately, Robin's records didn't have x-rays because she was pregnant when she last went to the dentist. Oh. So she didn't get her x-rays done for safety reasons. Mr. Johnson couldn't believe what he would read in the local newspaper a couple days later, too. It said that officials weren't sure if the remains belonged to a person or an animal. It's like, come really? on, when was the last time you saw an animal with painted fingernails for Purple. One? Yeah. Purple nails. <laughs> like, come on. Johnson remembered seeing another short story in the newspaper a year or so later. This article did say that the remains he found belonged to a human, but the story never mentioned Robin Farnsworth. Robin's mother remained unconvinced that the remains belonged to her daughter. They asked her to look at the the sweater with the tassels or the loafers, or did it never say? It never said, but surely they asked her, right? Yeah. Like, does these loafers belong to your daughter or something like that? She may have just been in denial all, the, all those years. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't blame her. Yeah. And Sheriff Odom tried to interview both Grubbs and Temple again, but he had no luck getting them to talk. He left office in 2000, and the bones remained unidentified at the state crime lab. Odom said, We didn't know for sure it was Robin. The only thing that made us believe that it could have been was Donnie Temple's story and the fact that they didn't have any other missing persons. The bones somehow resurfaced again three years later in March 2003. New White County Sheriff Pat Garrett came across a box that wasn't labeled sitting in the evidence room. What? There was just this <laughs> this box with bones in it just chilling in the evidence room. Now, I don't know how like jam-packed this evidence room was, but still, like who just... And there's no label? There's no label on it, and it's just been sitting in there for over three years. Nothing rented on it, just bones. 
Well, he sent them off to the FBI lab in Virginia for a mitochondrial DNA analysis. This was an expensive technique that really wasn't available except for in certain areas. Definitely wasn't being done in Arkansas at the time. Garrett said that there was a decade-long backlog at the FBI lab in Virginia, but he was able to persuade county court officials to spend $2,500 for testing by a private lab in Reno, Nevada. Okay, I like him. Yeah, yeah. In a news conference May 7, 2004, Pat Garrett announced that the FBI had verified that the bones found in 1997 belonged to Robin Farnsworth. No one could say how or when Robin died. The medical examiner's office was also never never able to determine an official cause of death because the remains were so old and the skeleton was incomplete. White County released Robin's remains to the Powell Funeral Home. She now has a gravestone in Shady Grove Cemetery on Bald Knob Lake Road. And when you think back on Robin's case, you just have to feel sad for her daughter, Samantha, the most. I mean, nine months old when her mother went missing, she had to grow up without a, a mother. Samantha was Robin's everything. There was nothing in the world that made her happier. She loved Samantha. And there were many days as Samantha got older where she would just sit down and cry and say she wanted her mom, especially during like the holidays. And then she's got her grandma who's in denial, having like visions. Yeah, she ended up getting adopted by an aunt and uncle. Oh. And she only had one picture of the two of them together, her and Robin, and then there was another picture she had of just Robin, which I thought was wild because this was only back in 1995. There's, you should have a lot of pictures I would think you know, so too. I don't or know. Her maybe mom there was, or somebody. Maybe there was a house fire or something. Who knows? Robin's mother, Kathy, stayed mad at the police in Bald Knob. She felt like they didn't take Robin's case seriously just because she had run away from home before. She felt like if they had taken it seriously, it could have saved Kenyatta's life. Which, that's a good point. It is. I feel like, yeah, that that's very possible that. Kenyatta would still be alive. At the same time, Robin's mother didn't really help the case by saying that she thought she saw her daughter still alive, too. And Robin's brother, Christopher Bowles, fought hard to get attention put on Robin's case after he got out of prison. You know, I said earlier that he was in prison at the time she went missing for burglary. I think he spent like five years in prison or something like that. But he said he wished he could have been around when she went missing because he would have kept at the police to pursue any leads. He said he said that they knew Grubbs since they were kids. Him and uh, Robin. Which was weird because Grubbs said he like vaguely knew who Robin was when he was asked about it. With a few hundred people or however many were there at that time. Everybody's going to know who everybody is. Especially, like you described her upbringing. You know, kids in that high school were talking that she was the poor kid. Or, you know, what do you call it? At risk? At risk. Like, everybody knew. 
you can't not know who the pregnant 14-year-old is in your school. He knew who she was. Very true. Christopher spent a lot of time with Samantha showing her letters that Robin sent him when he was in prison. He also felt like his mother may have hurt the investigation when she would continually say that Robin was alive and that she saw her even after Grubbs and Temple were arrested. And she was really the only one to say anything like that. Former Sheriff Odom said that he would give anything to solve this case. It's an unfortunate situation of facts, but the evidence just is not there to put a case together. Donnie, Ray Temple, and James Derrick Grubbs were always the only suspects in both of these cases. How strange, too. Because obviously they've got the story from Temple about Grubbs and... what? How do you say your name? Kenyatta? Kenyatta. Kenyatta. So was what happened to her... What Was that the accelerated version of what happened to Robin? Or was that her baby daddy, the boyfriend? Because you haven't really talked about him except for one time saying he worked at the Piggly Wiggly. So I wonder where he's been... When all that was going on. Well, like if he was a suspect or something? Yes. I don't know. He was never really mentioned in anything that I found. I just find that kind of odd. Yeah. The or road. was he even the baby's daddy? He, was he just know. the boyfriend? If he was the baby daddy, I, I just saw know. that he was the boyfriend. Okay, I'm sorry. You're asking too many questions. I'm yeah. sorry. Shit. Shit. Somewhere down the road, though, there's going to be someone arrested or someone on their death pet, deathbed that <laughs> deathbed that confesses to something, surely. And it's going to just blow this case open. The skeletal remains are really all they have, and that's just not enough to prove that there was a criminal act committed. Now, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 2017 that affected this case tremendously. In this ruling, sentencing a person to life in prison with no chance at parole for a crime committed as a minor is cruel and unusual punishment, and Arkansas eliminated life without parole for juveniles. Juveniles convicted of capital murder are subject to a life sentence with the possibility of parole after a minimum of 30 years. Now, this doesn't affect Donnie Temple because he, he was, was 18. Correct. So his original sentence doesn't change. But Grubbs was only 17 at the time of Kenyatta's murder. It Can y'all hear my eyes rolling right now? Right. And he was only 58 days shy of his... 18th birthday too so he was basically 18 come on it was ultimately determined that Grubbs should be resentenced by jury so a two-day hearing was held the state presented testimony from law enforcement and the victim's family so again Kenyatta's family had to relive this whole thing again the defense offered testimony from Grubbs's family from prison officials and from an expert witness in neuropsychology and child psychology who had examined Grubbs. After hearing this testimony in October of 2018, the jury resentenced him to life in prison with parole eligibility after 30 years. So that was basically the maximum sentence that they could give him. 
And at the time, in 2018, he had already served 23 years of that, so he'll be up for parole in 2025. No way. Just a couple years from now. That doesn't... Crazy. There's... That, that should not... It's not justice. Right. Like, 17, almost 18, to me, like you were saying, is pretty much the same. It'd be different if, well, God, I hope a 13-year-old isn't out there raping and murdering somebody and keeping rocks to well, carry the body down. But that's somebody you want to try to rehabilitate. Because, you know what? Maybe you could change something with medications and therapy along the way, but 17, about to be 18, yeah. that's some bullshit. My, my issue is he's lived a whole life now. Kenyatta did not Never. get to live a whole life. She died at 18 years old, so it's just frustrating that he gets a chance, which I don't think he'll get that chance to be paroled, but still, even having the opportunity right, is right. just bullshit. <laughs> and he sounds like he's one of those that I'm he, not trying to like, you he, know... He never showed remorse till this day about killing Kenyatta. Okay, so, well, never mind what I was going to say. To hell with him. I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt that if he gets out, that maybe he'll do some good, but he's probably one of those that would reoffend and go right back in. Mm-hmm. How I'm just still like baffled that like, how do you just rape and murder and then try to hide a body, let alone two of them, out of the blue like that? Unless he was a troublesome student or something was, was going on, or he was gonna be a call. I mean, he was going to college in the next year. He was like a good student. How strange! Like he had his whole future ahead of him. So why? That is so strange. And the fact that he was friends with Kenyatta, who was a really good student as well, they were popular good kids, cheerleader. But he did something. Like what the crazy. hell happened? So strange. In May of 2021, Bald Knob Mayor Barth Grayson proclaimed May 3rd Kenyatta Haynes Day, and said it would it would be that way annually. Also, a $1,000 scholarship would be given each year to a senior at Bald Knob High School that would be accepted into a bachelor's program in a mental health field. This would be in Kenyatta's name as well. Oh, that's nice. That is nice, yeah. So her name will live on. Unfortunately, they didn't do anything for Robin like that, which is kind of sad. I'm glad that Kenyatta's family got some sort of justice for her and something positive came from her life there. I wish the same could be said for Robin. Mm -hmm. I hate that there was a box of her remains just sitting in the evidence room for so long and there was no priority put on her life. At least that's what it you couldn't even give her like. a Jane Doe name tag. Yeah. I don't know if it was because she was this at-risk youth or she wasn't the prototypical perfect victim category, you know. She was a mother to a sweet little baby girl. She was kind-hearted, and she could have broke that cycle of the rest of her family and made something of herself. Robin's case is still solvable. I think if there was enough pressure put on Donnie Temple, for one, he'd speak up against grubs and say what happened to I would Robin, hope so. you know? But I feel like they're just not pushing that enough. Because he almost said the whole story to the jailer. Like, I feel like they could get him to talk again. Ugh. Samantha said, 
it's unfair that someone is keeping something a secret. I just don't know how you can put a family through that. It's going to take someone who's holding in all of these secrets, finally getting tired of all the guilt, and to come forward. Now, if anyone has any information, you should call the White County Sheriff's Department at 501-279-6279. And that's the case of Kenyatta Haynes and Robin Farnsworth. Good job, love. Thank you. Great vacation story, love. Unlike your last one when you did George Smith. Oh, yeah. That was a fun one. This was not. Bummer. But it needed to be said. Nobody out there has talked about these two, right? No. This is the first time this has been mentioned on a podcast, I believe. So. Okay. Maybe we can get some balls rolling. That'll wrap up today's episode here on the Caught Red Podcast. If you like us, share us. Leave us a review wherever you listen to help get us some more dog lovers and true crime lovers and horror movie lovers. We'll, we're going to talk about them soon. I, I promise. Maybe not horror movies, but... Well, yes. Oh, oh. Wink, wink. Oh, I like hint, it. Hint. I forgot about that. That'll be a fun one. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget, you have to spell it with a P-A-W-D for podcast. Send us any recommendations if you have them. We will be back next week with some more true crime. But until then, stay local, shop local, murder local.